Jesus, we thank you so much for uh, your love. Lord, we thank you that, again, we can all gather here together. Lord, we can lift up each other in prayer. Lord, I pray for each of the people in here, Lord, and the the things they have going on in their lives, Lord Jesus, and how, uh, how, Lord, sometimes we can do them away from you or we can do them with you. Uh, Lord, I just pray that we would do everything with you. And, Lord, we just... uh, we thank you that you've put each one of us as a light on a hill in our communities and in the places we work and go to school and live. And, Lord, I pray that uh, we would shine brightly for you. Uh, Jesus, uh, we don't have to face persecution yet, but, Lord, I just pray that uh, we would still just be bold in, in glorifying you, God, with all our choices. Lord, we ask with, with desperation, Lord, that you would speak to us through this chapter because... If we're, if we're coming to church on a Wednesday night and, it, and it's a burden, Lord, it's not good. Lord, we need refreshment. We need your spirit. We need to, to be here and to be blessed, Lord. We, we, like Jacob, will not let go of you until you bless us, Lord. And that's, that's our way of surrender. Lord, we're, gonna, we're, st- we're not trying to get a blessing from you. We're not trying to twist your arm, Lord. We're just holding on for dear life to our Savior, and to your word for us. So, Lord, we, we beg you, Jesus, to speak to us and to come back quickly to rescue us, to make all things right. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we're in Zechariah chapter 13, and this is a chapter about that time when Jesus is going to come back and make all things right. His second coming, and, and this is about what that time was is going to be like. What's it going to be like here on the earth? So let me give you just a brief overview of eschatology. Eschatology is just the study of end times events. And so according to the Bible, we are in what's what uh, theologians call the church age. Okay, so this is a time where God is working through the church to bless the world and to bring people to repentance and to save people. All right. Well, very soon, this church age is going to come to a close at what's called the rapture. And we do believe it's going to be soon. And and that ushers in a time of great tribulation upon the earth. And those seven years of great tribulation is God not working through the church anymore. He's working through and working on and for the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, the people he has made promises to. He comes back to working with them. We, as the church, are safely tucked away in heaven, enjoying the marriage feast of the Lamb. It's going to be awesome for you and me. I'm going to give you a fist bump, all right? But on earth, time is up. It's actually kind of like bonus time. You know, overtime, if, you, if you're in hockey and it's like any moment it can end, time, regulation time ended at a certain point, And that's when the church goes up into heaven. And so everyone who goes into the tribulation is in for a rough time. It's no longer a time of grace and God's blessing on the earth. It's actually a time of God's judgment and him pouring out these, well, first he blows trumpets, right? You've got angels blowing trumpets, which means God's going to war against un- unrighteousness and wickedness. And then you've got these bowls, which means God's cleansing the earth of all its wickedness and unrighteousness, all right? So, and then you've got the seals before that means God is... is taking possession of what's his. So that's the book of Revelation basically in a nutshell for you. God working. Then, seven years go by. Then, 
Jesus comes back. It says with 10,000 of his saints. Who do you think that is? Us. That's you and me. So Jesus is going to be riding on a horse. We're all going to be riding back behind him. It's going to be awesome. And, and he's going to come back and we're going to see some of those things next week. And in, in fact, some of it this week of exactly what happens. Because we're actually told the place on this earth that he touches his foot down. It's a very specific place. Did you know that? The Mount of Olives. We'll see. And there's this big earthquake. And the mountain splits in half. And then the waters come out. It's crazy. It's crazy. The amount of detail we have about this day. In fact, we have more detail about this day, this second coming of Jesus, than almost any day in history or talked about in the Bible. We have tons of detail. So Jesus shows up in the clouds. All the nations of the earth are gathered against Israel, fighting in the northern valley there of Jezreel, and the battle of Armageddon, and Israel's there, and they're just about to be annihilated, and Antichrist is there, and the kings of the east are there, and you have all these countries, and they see Jesus, and the Antichrist is like, shoot him, and so they're trying to shoot him, and they shoot nuclear bombs at him, and he's like, what are you doing? And, and he speaks a word, and they all are killed. And then Jesus sets up his kingdom on the earth. And he rules the world from Jerusalem for 1,000 years. And that's called the millennium. Okay, so this is eschatology. So the beginning of that 1,000 years, he actually chains up the devil so he can't hurt people anymore. And he sets up a government. And who do you think is his policeman in this, in this new world it's going to be you and me in our glorified bodies. So there will be no unrighteousness. No one will do anything wrong because you and I will have our glorified bodies and we can say, ah, you can't think that. How did you know I was, I can see what you're thinking. So you're going to have all this enforced righteousness. In fact, it's going to be an awesome time. And that's what we're going to be talking about right here is that when Jesus comes, it's to fix everything. Everything that people have prayed for, everything that people think is wrong with this world, everything that people are frustrated about or brings, un, brings just a longing for something different, all of that is answered. And for a thousand years, they enjoy this amazing life with Jesus as the king of the world. Now, there's other stuff we know about this thousand years like we're going to see I'm getting ahead of myself. But basically, everyone has to come visit Jesus once a year. Everyone in the world, you have to come visit him once a year. Or no rain falls on your land. But we're going to get to that. Okay? We know that, this, that Satan is bound up. And so for this thousand years, people are happy. But then at the end of the thousand years, God will allow Satan to be released for a very short time. And Satan goes around the world and he gathers this rebellion against Jesus. And it's, it's to give those people a choice. He's basically saying, you've lived with me for a thousand years. How's it been? Pretty awesome. Can't complain. No one's even died. It's been pretty amazing. The lions and the lambs are all laying down next to each other. It's pretty great. And he said, do you love me? And they'll say, sure, we love you. You're great. And then Satan gives them another option. Satan says, well, you don't have to. You can go with me and we can rebel. Let's do it. And there will be a rebellion at that time. Isn't that crazy? 
that someone could live for a thousand years knowing just the blessings of God and yet still rebel in their hearts. But God's not going to force anyone to come to heaven. And so that rebellion is squashed, that second end of the millennium rebellion. And God at that time destroys this earth along with this entire universe and creates a new one. And we all live happily ever after. Done. We can all go home. Just kidding. That, I just wanted you to have an overview of the time frame, okay? So what we're talking about tonight, what this chapter is about, is that time when Jesus is reigning. And he's explaining to us what true goodness is going to look like. What is How exciting it's going to be, okay? So look at Zechariah 13.1. It says, In that day, a fountain shall be opened up for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. In 1818, Ignaz Philip Wise was born into a world of dying women. The first hospitals, uh, the finest hospitals, excuse me, lost one out of six young mothers to the scourge of childbed fever. A doctor's daily routine began in the dissecting room where he performed autopsies. From there, he made his way to the hospital to examine expectant mothers without ever pausing to wash his hands. Dr. Samuel Wise was the first man in history to associate such examinations with the resultant infection and death. His own practice was to wash with a chlorine solution. And after 11 years of the delivery of 8,537 babies, he only lost 184 mothers, about 1 in 50. He spent the vigor of his life lecturing and debating with his colleagues. Once he argued, I can't pronounce the name of this fever, something fever is caused by decomposed material conveyed to a wound. I have shown how it can be prevented. I have proved all that I have said. But while we talk, 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 gentlemen, women are dying. I am not asking anything world-shaking. I am asking you to wash your hands. For God's sake, wash your hands. Quote. That's what he said. But virtually no one believed him. Doctors and midwives had been delivering babies for thousands of years without washing, and no outspoken Hungarian was going to change them now. So Samuel Wise died insane at the age of 47. His wash basins discarded, his colleagues laughing in his face, and the death rattle of a thousand women ringing in his ears. Wow. Wash your hands, doctors. Good thing they know about that now, but our entire world went thousands of years without that common understanding. And even back in the Old Testament, the Lord was always telling his people to wash, it, wash their hands. That's what a lot of the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy is about, is washing hands and other things. But without being washed clean, you know, we all die from the contamination of sin. But when Jesus comes into a life, Cleansing follows, both at that moment of salvation and at any time after. He doesn't leave you or leave you to your own resources. He is there for you. That's the grace of the new covenant. 
See, washing is available for you and I on a daily basis. And don't we need it sometimes? Sometimes, I mean, I've been saved for a long time, but sometimes I have a day that I just feel like I am need a bath from the sin that I've been involved with that day. I feel it. Well, in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, I'll read it to you. It says, And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. See, baptism is a great picture of washing away It's like washing the dirt off in a bath. I love that picture. And I tell people sometimes when they're getting baptized, do you need a bath? And they say, no. I say, well, spiritually, do you need a bath? And they're like, yes, I do. I want to be cleaned. And so it pictures that washing away the sin in faith. Is this saying that you need to get baptized to get saved? Is that what this verse in Acts is saying? Be baptized to wash away your sins? No. It's giving a picture of the effects of salvation. It's, you know, Jesus is all about salvation and restoration and victory over sin. And we always need to remember that the victory Jesus offers us is both eternal and for this life. So our cleansing, that victory over sin, he offers it to us. You can know that you're saved for eternity. I'm sure most of you in here are like, yes, I know that I'm going to heaven and I'm pretty happy about it. But the cleansing in this life, the day by day, man, I just really screwed up. I really, it, this person is just hacking me off and it's, it's causing me to really struggle. And I didn't go to the Lord right away and so I made a mess of stuff. And maybe I've been making a mess of stuff for 20 years. And the Lord is saying, my washing, my cleansing is available for that too. It's not just for the penalty of sin. It's for the day-to-day cleansing. There's these two levels of salvation. There's salvation for eternity, and then there's the daily salvation. And I think a lot of Christians, they're like, they're cool with the eternal salvation thing. I got my eternal salvation down. I know I trust in Jesus. I believe he died for me. But it's this day-to-day salvation that we need to seek too. I still look at myself in the mirror today and say, I need to be saved. I need to be saved from my, my daily life of sin. And we can look for these two levels of salvation in the Bible. You know, the question we can we can have is, is do we need cleansing tonight? Have you gotten a little dirt on your, uh, you know, on your feet and on your hands from this world just by what you've gone through in the world today? Did someone at work just ugh, make you upset? Or did just being in this world or someone at, on the radio just say something that just irked you? Or, you know, sometimes it's like they just spew their sin and you just feel like, man, I'm dirty in this world. Or the other option is we've just given in to sin and said, I give up, I can't resist it anymore. So I'm just living a lifestyle of just going back to the same sins over and over and over. But we have the option to return to Jesus, to come to Jesus now 
and accept his washing. But it takes humility to do that, though. It, it, was, it was tough for Peter to do that. If you, if you would turn with me to the book of John, chapter 13, we've got to see this story with Peter. It's one of the most wonderful stories. It says in John, chapter 13, Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he should depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing all that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose up from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, Not my feet only, but my head and my hands. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So Jesus tells Peter, If if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. So, that beginning part, that, that part, that initial washing of Jesus, he says, it involves salvation and justification. It, it, if we do not accept this humble work of Jesus in our life to cleanse us, he says we have no part in him. So, coming to the Lord every day, well, coming to the Lord at the beginning, when we first have a relationship with him, we have to admit that I can't wash myself of all my sin. I can't take the bath. Only you can do it, Jesus. And so that's okay. But then he says, on the continual basis, he says, if you're not coming to me daily and saying, Lord, I need you. Lord, cleanse me. I need your cleansing. He says, it shows that you just have no part in me. It's like, where's our relationship at? Where am I with you? If you don't want me to wash you every day, you're going to be stinky. It's going to show in your, in your Christian life. It's going to show. So then Peter's like kind of overboard and he says, Lord, not my feet only, but my head and my hands. And Peter thinks he needs to get saved all over again. But Jesus lovingly answers him, and he says, He who is bathed only needs to wash his feet, but he is completely clean. And you are clean. So coming to Jesus is not just a one-time event. It's a lifestyle of dependence and trust. It's a lifestyle. If you thought it was humbling to come to Jesus the first time, just wait and see how it feels when you've betrayed him for the hundredth time or the thousandth time And you have to humble yourself and ask him for forgiveness again. Lord, I've done it again. And this happens a lot when you get married, huh? 
because you're like, oh, I did it again. I know she doesn't like that, and I, I didn't consider her again. And Lord, would you wash my feet? Because I, I need you. I depend upon you. All right. Yet God promises that this humble life, this humiliating life, is actually for our good. First Peter chapter five, verse five. It's a very important verse for our, our lives. And he says, Likewise, you younger people, 1 Peter 5, 5, you younger people, submit yourself to you elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility for God. Resist the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. So this, this, this cleansing takes humility like at home it's humiliating to have to say i can't wash my feet every day would you come and wash my feet and i know that those older folks who move into the old folks home they really struggle a lot of times with the humiliating factors that go into them not being able to clean themselves and not being able just physically to take care of their needs but if we all understood that that's where we're at spiritually, we have no spiritual abilities. Our spiritual abilities come straight from dependence upon the Lord. And he says, I'll meet all of your spiritual needs. I will. Do you have to allow me to? You have to ask me to. Come to me and I'll do it for you. So we come to this fountain every day. You know, he says he'll open up a fountain back in, in Zechariah chapter 13. He opens up this fountain in Jerusalem. And it's, it's a, such a wonderful picture to us. We come to this fountain every day and we can drink deeply of that life of Jesus as we're cleansed. You know, such, such good pictures for us to remember. Here's your Spurgeon quote for the day. Love Spurgeon? Here we go. According to the verse before us, This provision is inexhaustible. There is a fountain opened, not a cistern or reservoir, but a fountain. A fountain continues still to bubble up and is as full after 50 years as at the first. And even so, the provision and the mercy of God for the forgiveness and the justification for our souls continually flows and overflows. I like that he said it's a fountain and not a lake or a reservoir, something that will run out. But no, he says, it's a fountain, just continually coming up. Back in Zechariah, we go to verse 2. It says, and, that, and it shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they, they shall no longer be remembered. And I will cause, also, I will cause the prophets these are false prophets, and the unclean spirits to depart from the land. And it shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father or mother who begot him will say to him, you shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. And it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. These are the false prophets again. And they will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. But he will say, I am no prophet. I'm a farmer. For I I have a man taught me to keep cattle for my youth. 
And one will say to him, well, where are these wounds between your arms? And he will answer those with which uh, those are, are those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. So here's a real interesting prophecy about the time when Jesus is reigning. That idolatry is going to be cut off and false prophets are going to be cut off. And this is interesting because these were both the chief ways that the children of God were led astray from him. Okay, so idolatry, people coming and saying, your God who wrote the Bible is not the real God that you need to spend your time and attention focused on. You need to spend your time and attention focused on the TV or on the education or on the job or on the relationship or the money or the sex and rela- or all the different things that represented these different idols. So the idolatry was real tough for the nation of Israel to overcome because they looked at the Philistines and they're like, man, the Philistines look like they're having a grand old time. And they worship this, these other gods. They worship the gods of pleasure. That kind of sounds like a fun god. They worship the gods of, of war. And they got a pretty good army. Maybe that's the way to go. And this children of Israel really struggled and they were tripped up many times by this idolatry. And the false prophets. People who said, I have heard something from the Lord. And so this is what you need to do to please the Lord. But it wasn't what the Lord said. And that was actually much more common because... And it's interesting that he says, I'll, I'll cast out the spirits. You know, the, the, I'll cause the unclean spirits to depart from the land. It's interesting because these false prophets weren't just normal. They actually had a a spiritual, like authority or power or deception in them. It wasn't just a normal, I think God says you're supposed to paint your house purple. No, no, there was something deeper. There was something spiritual, evil and wicked behind what they're saying. And they knew how to get into people's hearts. It was like getting their hooks in the hearts of the people and drawing them away from God. And God hated it. So Jesus not only provides a fountain to cleanse his people, but he promises to remove the things that caused his people to drift and turn away from him. This is going to be a great time. Not only is he just continually cleansing them, But he's removing all the distractions. Isn't that what your honeymoon is for? Supposed to be. To remove all the distractions. You know, I hear sometimes about people going to like Disneyland on their honeymoon or Disney World. And I'm like, that sounds like fun, but it sounds really distracting of what you're supposed to be doing on your honeymoon. (laughs) Well, yes. Other people just go to the mountains to a cabin. Whatever you want, I guess. And as I w- traveled around Israel last year and, <clears throat> and, and took buses and, and walked around, I saw that idolatry is still alive and well in that country. And even the false prophets, you know, you, uh, you see these huge monuments and these gaudy shrines all over the place. And it's the same all over the world, too. Um, you know, you go to Thailand, it's like every block there's an there's a idol. And there's a monument and there's things you can pray to, like every street corner. It's crazy. Um, You know, so it's going to be a wonderful day for the people when they're finally freed from these distractions and this deception, and finally they just can look at Jesus and enjoy him. 
They can look at, at their God and enjoy him. And it says here that they shall no longer be remembered, which God promises, you know, ultimately to take away even the memory of our sin. And I am excited about that day. It's going to be good. We see that there's a time coming when the people will not just, they won't even tolerate false prophets. So he talked about the people's attitude, right? The, if a mother and father begot a son and he turned out to be a false prophet, their attitude is, I'm going to kill you. That was their attitude because they won't even tolerate the, Their commitment to Jesus will be so intense that even their own family is second priority. Now, does that make you think? Have you heard that before? Can you think of another guy who said something along those lines? Well, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus said almost the same thing. He said in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, it's the other way, instead of the son being the false prophet, it's the father and mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, let me read that to you in the New Living Translation, which, you got your New Living Translation? You ready to rock? All right. It says, If you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. That's, you know, that's Jesus' heart. He says, I am so important to you, you cannot get distracted even by the closest relationships you have. That's how important I am to you. And that's how it's going to be during this millennium time. Everyone is going to be just, it's all about Jesus. Can you imagine a world like that? It's going to be awesome. So we pray for this world to come. And it says they will put away that, that robe of coarse hair. So this false prophet guy, he's going to be so like uh, not wanting to be a false prophet. He's going to be so scared of, the, of having a deceitful heart that he's going to put away that. It was the uniform that false prophets would wear. Uh, they, they would put on this robe of coarse hair and say, look at my clothing. And for some reason that made them stand out as, as some sort of spiritual authority. But he's like, I am not a spiritual authority. So the guy who was maybe in the past and had a wicked heart, he's, he's all about saying, I'm not involved in that anymore. And then it says in verse 6, it says, then one will say to him, where are these wounds? Where did you get these wounds between your arms? And he'll say, well, I got those when I was wounded in the house of my friends. So here's the thing. Many people look at this verse and see it as a prophecy of Jesus. Okay, and, and which would make sense because he was wounded in his hands and, and he even called his enemies friends. Remember when Jesus or Judas came to betray him, what he said? He said, friend. So I, I'm not going to say that's the wrong thing to do. I mean, there are some, some prophecies that were told in the New Testament that when you go back and look at them in context in the Old Testament, it's like, how in the world do you get that out of that? Like, I couldn't do that, but the Holy Spirit said, it is, so it must be. So I'm not going to say that's not what the Lord intended us to think about. But um, the context is, is, is that this was these false prophets, and that those false prophets liked to, to cut themselves. Do you remember that story from uh, the prophets of Baal uh, and Elijah? When he challenged them and they were cutting themselves, that was one example of them doing that. And they did, they, they cut themselves a lot. And so what's going on here is these, during the millennium, these people are saying, where, wait, have you been cutting yourself? 
Have you been trying to find another God? Have you been trying to please God by hurting yourself? Because that doesn't line up with good doctrine and you're going to be in big trouble if you're doing that. And he's like, no, 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 no. I've gotten a fight at my friend's house. That's literally what he says. And so, you know, that's an interesting story. <laughs> I don't know why that's his, that, that's put in there. And, and so it makes me think that maybe the Lord does want us to think towards Jesus in this because Jesus has a, you know, he's on every page in the Bible. I mean, you, you, you're, we're called to look for him and he has these supernatural ways of showing up in our life. So that's a real interesting verse that kind of could go um, a couple different ways. All right. So let's look now at verse 7. This is where it gets really, really interesting. He says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. So the shepherd here is Jesus. No doubt, 100%. We know this from Matthew because it's quoted in Matthew, this verse. And he says that this was talking about the crucifixion when Jesus would be killed and all of his disciples would be scattered. So the really interesting thing here is that it says it's the father that calls for him to be killed. It's the father that calls the sword to kill his son. And look, he says he, he calls him the man who is my companion. The man. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. The man. Very important. And my companion means, it's, it's like the word for neighbor, but it means even closer than a neighbor. Like someone who is equal in, in heart with you. So close that you're, you're intimate as friends. Okay, so that's the that's how the language works there. So I'm going to read to you Isaiah chapter 53, which is amazing. It says in verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief and to put him to grief. And when you shall make his soul an offering for sin and he shall see his seed and prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. So the father shall see the travail of the soul or the suffering of the son and be satisfied. By my knowledge shall righteousness, uh, that he shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So when Jesus died on the cross, it was the father's will. He wanted Jesus to die on the cross. It satisfied something that needed to be satisfied. And, and some say it was Satan's victory that Jesus died on the cross, or it was somehow man's triumph, but really, it was God's victory. God got something accomplished that he wanted to accomplish. And in the 11th century, so a, a thousand years after Jesus, okay, the church has been going for a thousand years, and they've been studying Jesus and, and loving Jesus, and, and just he'd been growing his church, and ups and downs, and all this church history, okay? And it, it took until the 11th century for this guy named Anselm, A-N-S-E-L-M, of Canterbury. He was the pastor in Canterbury. He brought a huge blessing to the church that we still are experiencing this blessing today when he explained 
the idea of satisfaction atonement. Now, we actually, you guys are going to understand what I'm, I'm going to explain it to you, but you're going to understand that you already know this stuff. But we've got to understand that the church for a thousand years didn't know this didn't understand what satisfaction atonement was. I mean, the idea had been floating around and maybe the most advanced scholars and the advanced teachers had an idea of what this meant or why Jesus had to die or that the, the Father was pleased to do, what all that meant. But you guys actually know it, okay? So it's an in-depth look of the idea of God's reconciliation work or his atonement, okay? So the satisfaction theory of atonement was formulated by Anselm in his book, uh, I'll translate it for you, Why the God-Man, or basically, Why did God have to be a man? He wrote this big book. Why did God become a man? And in that book, Anselm undertook to explain the rational necessity of the Christian mystery of atonement, the argument at its core is that the only, only a human being can make recompense for human sin against God. But this is impossible for any human being. Such recompense could only be made by God. This is only possible for Jesus Christ, the Son, who is both God and man. The atonement is brought about by Christ's death, which is of infinite value, Ultimately, in Anselm's interpretation of the atonement, divine justice and divine mercy in its fullest senses are shown to be entirely compatible. See, people really struggled, struggled with this. And let me read some more about it. It says, according to this view, sin incurs a debt of divine justice. So when you sin, you owe a debt to God. And a debt that somehow must be paid. Thus, no sin, according to Anselm, can be, fit, can be forgiven without satisfaction. God can't just say, I forgive you for nothing. He can't do that. It goes against his nature. The sin has to be paid for. And that's, that's this idea. All the service that a person can offer to God is already obliged on other debts to God. The only way in which the satisfaction can be made that humans could be set free of their sin was by the coming of a Redeemer who was both God and man. He himself would have to be sinless, thus having no debt that he owed, and his death is something greater than all the sins of all humanity. His death makes a superabundant satisfaction of the divine justice. Well, that's some big words. The just means it was more than enough. When Jesus died, it was more than enough. And what this did is it brought about reconciliation. And so in, in 2 Corinthians 5, I'll read this verse to you, 2 Corinthians 5.19. It says that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Not imputing their trespasses unto them, that, and, uh, and he has now committed unto us the ministry of reconciliation. So this whole idea of reconciliation and atonement, which we commonly understand in the gospel. So you guys knew about that already, right? Superabundant satisfaction of atonement. You got it? All right. <laughs> you guys already understood that. And that's what we go out and we make known to people. But it took a thousand, a thousand years for the church to really grasp this with solidarity. 
until this guy Anselm. So I just thought I'd give you that church history uh, bonus. Don't free. Don't have to pay for that one. Just kidding. <laughs> in Zechariah chapter 13, back in chapter 13, verse 8, we come to the point where it says, And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die but that one-third shall be left in it. And I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. And will call up, they will call upon my name, and I will answer them. And I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. So this is how that, that time of the tribulation, or the time of his millennium starts. And it starts with one-third of the Jewish people surviving. But that means two-thirds of the Jewish people die. So coming through the tribulation, that tribulation time, two-thirds of his people, of, of the Jews, will die. And this is a very somber understanding that it's a great test, it's a great trial, it's, it's awful what the Jews are going to have to go through through that time, because that is millions of people, two-thirds. But he says one-third will, and he will refine them as silver. And those one-third of the Jewish nation is what enters into the millennium as the people on the world, along with anyone who was favorable towards Israel, anyone who got saved during that time. And those people are the ones who he begins, kind of starts over with the world. And he changes everything to how it was back in the Garden of Eden with the, the blessings and, and the long life with people. And people won't die during this whole thousand years. And so the population is going to increase incredibly, but it starts with one-third of the Jewish people. That's how it starts. That's what that verse tells us. And um, that's why this time is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is another name for Israel. And it's going to be very difficult for them where two-thirds of them die. And that's why Jesus says the Great Tribulation will be the most horrific time in human history. And in uh, Daniel chapter 12, just a couple books to our left is the book of Daniel. And at the end of that book, the very end when it's talking about this, it, it says in Daniel 12, 9, but he, Daniel, you go your way for what I have um, said is kept secret and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, cleansed, and refined by these trials. But the wicked will continue in their wickedness, and none of them will understand. Only those who are wise will understand what it means. For from the time of the daily sacrifice has stopped till the abomination of desolation um, is set up in worship, there will be 1,290 days. So at the end of Daniel, it's talking about the same time in Israel's uh, life, this, this seven years. And the last half of that is going to be really brutal. And he says that many people are going to be purified and cleansed and refined by these trials. So what is God's purpose of this seven years of horrific violence and terrible things? Purification, cleansing, and refining. And that's, that's very interesting that these trials have a, have a very specific purpose. But he doesn't just say, it goes on forever. He gives them a very specific period, right? He says it's going to go from 1,290 days. So if you are there during the tribulation and you're a Jew and you know 
And you start reading the Bible. And you start saying, what is God doing to us? And you say, oh, he's refining us and cleansing us. Well, how long is it going to be? You're going to actually know the day that Jesus is coming back. You're going to say, well, when did the Antichrist come in to our temple and set himself up and declare to be God and demand that we worship him? Well, it was on this day. Okay, well, then count 1,290 days. At the end of that 1,290 days, Jesus is coming back. So hold on. Hold on. And that's, that's a story for another time. That's why the rapture can't be at the end of the tribulation, all these other things. But with this chapter, we began with it saying there's water available for cleansing. And we end with fire doing some uncomfortable cleansing. And I think it's important for us to take a lesson from this in our own lives. If we don't accept Jesus' cleansing by water, we might just have to endure a tribulation of our own that, that has fire as the main instrument of change in our lives. In Daniel 10.6, it says of Jesus, his body was like barrel and his face was like the appearance of lightning and his eyes were like torches of fire. And in Revelation chapter 1, same guy. His head and hair were white like wool and his white as snow and his eyes were like a flame of fire. See, Jesus offers water for our cleansing on a daily basis. But he also has the fire if that's the way you want to do it. And it kind of is up to you. If you're cleansed and you're, and you're washing yourself in the word and you're, you're living your life, you know, his eyes of fire are actually comforting. It's loving. You're like, yes, burn away the rest. I've been washing myself every day. I know what this is about. I trust you. But man, if you're, if you're dirty and you've been running from the Lord, his eyes of fire can be scary. You know, and that trust level isn't there. And it can be, you know, kind of challenging for you to come back to repentance after a long time of running from the Lord. But he's still there. In the last verse, he says, And they will call on my name, and I'll answer them. And I'll say, This is my people. And each one will, uh, and each one will say, The Lord is my God. This prophetically refers to the Jewish people who survived the Great Tribulation and come to salvation in the second half of uh, of that final period of the Great Tribulation. Um, this includes the 144,000, but is not limited to that number, and they'll, they'll make up that core of people that go in. And it, it's interesting because it says, they will call and I will answer. They will call and I will answer. And I encourage you guys to go and do a study because those two verbs, call and answer, are used many times in the Bible of God. He says, call and answer. They're actually used so commonly together in the Old Testament that it becomes a standard formula uh, and it's called the call and answer motif. So it's the believer's call to God was indicative of his personal relationship and communion with him. It is often used this way in the Psalms and throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. And uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's used to denote the establishment of a relationship between a human and and God. So, to end our study, we're just going to read Psalm 118. So if you guys would all stand up with me and open your Bibles to Psalm 118. Just find Psalm 118. It's toward the back. 
right before that real big one, Psalm 119. <laughs> Page 250, that's right. That's right. So, um, we're going to do what they do sometimes over at Calvary Roar, where I'm going to read the odd verses, and you guys are going to read the even verse verses. Can you do it? Can you do it with big, strong voices? All right. <laughs> I want to hear you men. All right. All right. So I'm going to do the odd verses, and you guys do the even verses. And we'll just do this with, uh, with the Lord and kind of this call and answer. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, his mercy endures forever. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. They surround me. Yes, they surround me. But in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. You push me violently that I may, might fall, but the Lord helped me. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. I will praise you, for you have answered me and become my salvation. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And Lord, we do call upon you, and, uh, and we just thank you, Lord God, that, that you can be our God today. And you're, you're not a God that's far away. You're a God that's close and has brought us near to you by your blood. And you have guaranteed and promised us your love. And we ask, Lord, that you would um, just take us from here in peace and grace, Lord, we trust in you. We turn all of our lives over to you. Lord, let your word be the light to our path. And, uh, and Lord, we want to see you do great things in our city. Lord, we pray for our vision. 
Lord, that we would understand the simplicity that your church has been called to here in this town. And Lord, we will teach your word and we will worship you and we will surrender to you. And we are committed to you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.